Welcome to the Where There's a Will, There's a Way podcast with Coulter Legal, where we share our insights and bust some myths on wills, estate planning and deceased estates. I begin today by acknowledging the Wadawurrung people, traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording this podcast today. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. Hey, and welcome back to the Where There's a Will, There's a Way podcast uh, with Coulter Legal. Um, you're here with Stefan Manch. I'm head of the Wills and Estates team and principal lawyer at Coulter Legal. Uh, and with me today, we've got Sarah Minter, lawyer in the Wills and Estates team. Welcome back, Sarah. Thanks for, having, Sarah. Me. Yeah, Thanks no, for having me back. Very happy to have you back. Uh, today we're talking about what is the process for estate administration once a person has passed. So what are the first things your executors should do? What is probate and will you need it? And how long will the process take and how are decisions made about your assets? But before we get into that, like I said, Sarah, welcome back. Great to have you. For those who haven't listened to your earlier episode, first of all, go back and have a listen to episode one. That's Estate Planning 101. Uh, but And where, Sarah, you introduce yourself really nicely and give a bit of a, a history of your legal background. But can you tell our listeners a little bit about your role within the Wills and Estates team at Coulter Legal? Yes, of course. Well, thank you so much for having me, Stefan. Um, I am a lawyer in the Wills and Estates team and I am also a legal operations manager down in our Surf Coast um, branch. So you'll usually find me in the Torquay office, sometimes here in Geelong as well. Um, and I particularly enjoy working with my colleagues across other teams as well as Wills and Estates mm-hmm. um, and working closely with a lot of our clients based around Geelong and the Surf Coast. That Torquay office is the place to be. Oh, we can walk to the beach in our lunch break. It's fabulous. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm doing a day week down there at the moment and it is my favourite day of the week, hands oh, down. Good to hear. Uh, so... As, uh, as you mentioned, um, whilst we love helping our clients with estate planning, you know, that's the, the, the front end process, a significant part of our job in the Wills and Estates team is, is also at the opposite end. So assisting executors to administer the estate when one of our will makers has passed away. Uh, we then see how the wills prepared with the best of intentions um, actually play out in reality. We do indeed. And this is part of our role, which is all about making the estate administration as easy a process as possible for the family following the death of a loved one. Um, It includes deciphering the legal process, interpreting the will, um, guiding the executors as to their responsibilities and obligations, Mm -hmm. and assisting to call in the estate assets, and then distributing the estate in accordance with the will. It's, It's a big role. So the executors, just to confirm for our listeners, they're the personal people appointed in the will to administer the estate. So they're essentially the legal representative of the estate and they're charged with making sure that what is recorded in the will actually plays out. It's the executors who are our client and not the beneficiaries, uh, although uh, the beneficiaries obviously will benefit from the work we complete. Um, and, and sometimes the executors are also the beneficiaries of the estate. So those roles can be one in the same. So with that defined, let's go from the start. So a person has passed away, sadly. Um, what should the executors do first? Well, so first of all, often executors are actually also loved ones of the person who's mm-hmm. passed away. So we recognise that it's an incredibly difficult time 
and recommend that they take some time to mourn and they don't need to rush straight away. They don't need to call us the same day. They can take that time. Absolutely. Um, we do recommend that they obtain a copy of the will. Sometimes the will will include wishes from the person who's passed away as to their funeral. Um, and it's for the executors to make those funeral arrangements. So it's really helpful them helpful, excuse me, for having for them to have a bit of an understanding of what the wishes were of, of the person. Yep. Um, once the funeral's arranged, um, the executors need to obtain the death certificate. Um, they also need to advise some key organizations of the passing of um, the person. So this might be Centrelink, uh, Superannuation Fund, or the Department of Veterans Affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, the executors should secure the assets of the person who's passed away. So this might include informing the bank of the death so that they can freeze the accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, it might include ensuring that properties and vehicles are insured. And if a property becomes vacant, ensuring that this is communicated to the insurer. Um, they might also want to collect any particular valuables that are going to be gifted in the will from the property. And, and I think that's a really important one. Sorry to, to, to jump in there. Not but at all. That in, insurance is, you know, the, the, such a huge part of the executive's role is, is not only distributing the assets but protecting them in the first instance while we get through this initial process. Uh, and I've had situations where, yes, a property was insured but because the, you know, the only resident had passed away, it was then vacant. If there's then an issue and we haven't informed the insurer, um, you know, the insurers have often got a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, um, you know, for, for coverage. So that part of the process is really important. It is. It's incredibly important. And then that last step, what is it? The last step after you've done all of those is to make an appointment with a solicitor to discuss the state administration and we can talk through the legal process and start start to assist with that. That's right. So then once the solicitor has been engaged and the death certificate is received and that death certificate, you know, it's often four to six weeks um, after the date of death, so there's, there is a little bit of time there, um, the estate administration can commence in earnest Let's talk through the process from there. So uh, part of the the lawyer's job is to contact the asset holders um, to get asset details as at the date of death and obtain appraisals for any estate properties. Uh, and, and those asset holders we're talking about are, are banks, um, share registries, uh, you know, investment institutions, um, you know, managed funds, all of those sort Sometimes of things. Sometimes it's the aged care facility. It might be a refundable accommodation deposit. That's a, one that we see quite frequently as well. Absolutely. And then the next step um, is determining whether a grant of probate is required. Now, this is probably a very good time to define what a grant of probate is, uh, as it is a source of, um, of often great confusion for many of our clients before speaking with us. So, Sarah, can you go through what a grant of probate is and and when it's required? So put simply, a grant of probate is the formal proving of the will. Hmm. Um, Once upon a time, it used to be a rather beautiful piece of paper with a seal. Uh, Now it's an electronic um, document, but it still has the same purpose. So so aesthetically less pleasing, but but with the same value. Exactly, exactly. So the grant of probate incorporates a process through the Supreme Court of Victoria which essentially confirms the authority of the executors to administer the estate. Um, This is required to access bank accounts and investments over a certain threshold and to deal with any real property. 
Um, it is a process that's undertaken on the paper, so it only requires paperwork. There's no requirement for executors to go and stand in the Supreme Court. I think we've probably covered that that's the last thing they would want to do in these circumstances. That's certainly ideal. Yeah. And so it's a two-step process. Uh, step number one is that we publish an advertisement um, on the Supreme Court of Victoria website, which advertises the intention to apply to file a grant, an application for grant probate. Right, and, and those sort of advertisements, they used to be in newspapers. People would see them all the time, but they're, they're now wholly online as well. Well, I think we're seeing that there's a little bit of a move to this being a more digital process than perhaps it was once upon a, yes. once upon a time. Uh, finally, our area of the law is catching up with the rest of the real world. <laughs> it's good to see. It is. So after 14 days after that um, advertisement is published, the probate application can be filed. Now, this is if we've got all the information. Um, so this incorporates an affidavit, which is a sworn statement of the executors setting out their their own details, the details of the person who's passed away mm -hmm. and the particulars of the estate. Um, it includes a certified copy of the death certificate, the mm -hmm. original will and an inventory of the assets and liabilities of the estate as at the date of the death. So this is filed with the probate office and if all is in line, the official grant of probate is received within, within about two to four weeks of filing. Yeah, and I'll put a little asterisk next to that two to four weeks of filing because that's the ideal. But occasionally there are a, a details which the probate office needs to uh, to double check with us or needs confirmation of. Those are called requisitions, and so what happens is the probate comes back. Uh, the probate office comes back to us as the lawyers, you know, making the application, uh, and we do what we need to do to uh, actually, you know, answer those questions. Um, so then the the probate process can continue. So let's assume we've ticked all of those boxes. Uh, we've got the grant of probate in hand or on screen as it is now. Um, and now the executors can start to properly act on behalf of the estate and call in the assets. They've got that requisite authority. Um, but a grant of probate isn't needed for every estate. Um, so can you talk us through when a grant's needed and when it isn't? Um, because this will be really relevant to how quickly estate administration can be started and of course, the overall costs of the estate process. Yeah, absolutely. So a grant of probate will be required when um, an estate holds an interest in a real property. So this is unless the deceased held on that interest in the property as a joint proprietor with a surviving joint owner. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll go into this distinction more in a future episode. Great. Um, but it's something that's quite common when perhaps you have a married couple who own a property together. This mm -hmm. is quite a common thing. A grant of probate will also be required when you've got a bank account or investment with a value which is above the institution's set threshold. Now, these thresholds rather frustratingly do vary, um, but it's usually around the $20,000 mark. Um, so if it's, you've got $20,000 or more in a bank account or an investment, mm -hmm. then the grant of probate will be required to release that. Right. Um, we mentioned before the refundable accommodation deposit or bond. So that's what's paid to an aged care facility. Um, they will almost always require a grant of probate to release that deposit. Yes, and that, those are often significant amounts of money. Oh, so, they certainly you know, 100, are. 200, 300, $400,000 at a time. Yes, yes. Um, shares. So where shares are held and they have got a value over $12,000, we'll need the grant of probate for that. Um, and if none of the above apply, or the values are under the thresholds, um, they might be able to be dealt with just by producing the death certificate and the will. Great. Okay. So that so that could be a simple process. In what we come across, 
it seems like 90, 95% of the estates do need the grant of probate. They do, yeah. Um, but we'll certainly go through and make sure if we don't need it, you know, we'll, we'll work through the estate without actually getting that grant. All right, so that's when the grant is required. Um, so then this, this is followed by the initial process where we assist the executors to collect the details and, and the value of the estate assets file the advertisement, we complete and file the probate application. Now, so far there hasn't been much involvement from the actual content of the will uh, other than the appointment of the executors. But that all commences, really gets underway once probate is obtained, right? Yeah, it certainly does. So once we have probate, it's all about calling in and collecting the estate assets and making sure that they are distributed in accordance with the will. So the will is the key document at this stage. Yes, yeah. And so... Where the will gifts a specific asset, so say a property or a parcel of shares to, to a beneficiary, that transfer is going to be pretty straightforward and, and the executor helps, you know, and we assist the executor in turn to make sure that that happens. Uh, but what happens with other assets that are just part of a larger pool to distribute? So often we see wills where it says, you know, I'll give this property to X and I'll give this parcel of shares to Y but treat the rest of my estate as a pool, and we often call that a residuary estate, but treat that as a pool and divide it between, you know, my my children, Barry and Susan. Um, so all of the assets that make up that pool, um, how, how is that determined whether they're sold or whether they're gifted or whether the beneficiaries take them? What's the process there? Well, so this is coordinated between the executor and the beneficiaries. So... It's based on the market or the agreed value of the assets, but it's also an important discussion with the estate solicitor as there are often tax or stamp duty exemptions when an asset is received directly from an estate rather than being liquidated. Right. So to give you an example, um, we're going to have quite a simple estate for this example. Perfect. So we have got an estate property worth $500,000. Um, and we also have cash assets, so money that's been released from the bank account, and that's also worth 500000 And the estate is being divided equally between two beneficiaries, Barry and Susan. This is the dream estate already. I love yeah, it. we don't often see any that are quite so simple, but we'll no. use this one for an example. Perfect. So if, for example, Barry decides that he would like to receive the transfer of the property directly in lieu of his interest in this, the estate, um, there's a stamp duty exemption. So there's no duty um, payable as the value of the property, the $500,000, is equal to his entitlement, the value of his entitlement under the will from the estate. Right. Um, so otherwise, if he had purchased that property, um, then um, there would be issues in relation to... Um, Stamp duty. There would, yep. yes. Yeah. Um, if and if this is also, it only applies um, if it was the deceased primary residence. Mm -hmm. um, that, but there would be um, no capital gains on the transfer. Right now, so that's obviously a greater benefit to Barry in these circumstances than taking the cash and buying an investment property on the open market. Of course, and and th that is a a wonderful example. Um, and I'm just thinking, there's also benefit to Susan there because if if the property was sold instead of it going to Barry then the estate would pay, you know, an, a real estate agent's costs to advertise and market the property. There'd be, you know, commission for the agent on the sale. There'd be, um, you know, legal costs on the sale. So even though Barry's getting a benefit because he's saving some stamp duty, 
Susan, as, as a beneficiary of the, you know, the global estates also getting some benefit too. And now that's a really, that's a, it is a great example, but it's a very simple one. And if, if all of them are, are that easy, that would make our lives certainly a lot simpler. It certainly would. But we see all sorts of variations of, of this arrangement, you know, with varying assets and there are all sorts of benef- benefits. So, you know, there might also be capital gains tax benefits for a, to a beneficiary taking a, a transfer of a parcel of shares mm-hmm. um, rather than the estate having to sell them um, because, you know, otherwise the estate would have to pay capital gains tax, you know, when those are sold um, because they've been realised, where a, a transfer through an estate, um, you know, puts that at bay, you know, until the beneficiary eventually sells them down the track if they do. It's, it's a sad reality that often the most cost-effective way to transfer wealth, you know, and, and avoid things like stamp duty and, and tax is, is through a deceased estate. Um, but thankfully we know all of the, the tips and the tricks and we can guide our executors and, and beneficiaries along that journey and they're, they're certainly well worthwhile considering and discussing before, you know, an estate's just completely liquidated and we just hand out some cash at the end. So once the decisions are made on the sale or transfer of estate assets and then the assets are called in, um, attention then turns to the distribution of those funds. So what are some of the key considerations on the timing of the distribution of those funds? Because that's all often at the, the heart of concern for executors and also beneficiaries as to, you know, when, when are they going to see their benefit from the estate? Of course, and beneficiaries are often expecting to receive it relatively quickly and there can be some elements which perhaps impact that. So one of the key considerations um, is to whether or not there's a possibility of a claim being brought against the estate. Mm-hmm. Um, if, for example, there is another relative who was not included but thinks that they should have received something um, or perhaps an estate wasn't distributed. Maybe Barry got 5% and Susan got 95 and Barry doesn't think that's quite right. Mm-hmm. In those circumstances, there might be a possibility of a claim being brought against the estate. So in those circumstances, we would speak to the executors and tell them, with some a decent amount of certainty that they should wait out six months from the date that probate was granted before distributing the estate. Um, if the estate's distributed within that time and then a successful claim is brought against the estate, the executors are actually personally liable to pay out the claim. Right. So that so that six-month window, that's six months from the, the date that uh, probate was granted, so not six months from the date of death, um, but it is... Uh, um, that is the window within which a claim can be brought. So if, if people miss out on that time frame, then the executors are good to go, which is why they might wait out that six months. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so further, if executors are not also beneficiaries, it's likely that they'll be really quite confident to wait out that six-month period before distributing. Um, although they may elect to distribute a portion of the estate in the interim and retain a balance, it's very much a case of analysing the risk that they feel is there in relation to the estate. Absolutely. That that makes perfect sense. I'm just going to mention here we, we're not going to go too uh, um, deep on claims against an estate. We've got a, a whole episode coming um, down the track on that. So look out for that. But today we'll, we'll stick to that as just a, you know, a, a, a taster of, you know, where we might consider or worry about a, a claim against an estate. 
But I'll let you get back to those those key considerations. Yeah, of course. And so there might also be delays um, with a distribution based on the settlement of a sale of an asset. For example, um, a property. If you're selling a property, I think we've all been there where it can take a while. And um, once it's sold, there are different settlement periods. It might be 60 days. It might be 90 days. And so that can impact how long um, it will take to distribute. Of course. And, and I might just add in that you know, that might be one of those reasons where there's a an interim distribution, so a portion of the benefit. So if, you know, cash comes in, often comes in much more quickly, um, you know, subject to the banks, uh, comes in much more quickly than the time it takes to sell a property. So we might say, well, we've got a significant sum of money here, but we're waiting 90 days for the settlement of this sale of the property. You know, we'll distribute this amount now and we'll distribute those sale proceeds from the house when that happens in 90 days' time. Yeah, you're completely correct. There's no need for us to wait for everything Mm -hmm. before we can distribute. So um, those interim distributions can be done at at an earlier stage where it's appropriate. Great. Um, Under wills as well, there's often um, beneficiaries under wills who might be minors. So there might be a benefit which is to be held by the executors for a period of time. Perhaps there's a gift to go to somebody who is a child when they reach the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or the other example is providing the use of a property to a beneficiary for their lifetime or for a defined time period. Right. So that's sort of set up, you know, the executors continue to hold on to that property but somebody gets to use it. Exactly. Um, and that so the estate's not fully finalised or distributed until that right comes to an end. Exactly. Yeah. And, of course, there's nothing certain in life except death and taxes. So it's also important to consider any outstanding tax implications, either for the deceased, so there might be a final tax return, mm-hmm. um, or for the estate. So there might be tax on any income earned during the period of administration or capital gains tax payable as a result of a sale of an estate asset. So it's vital that this is determined before the final distribution of the estate. Of course. Um, what a what a joyful combination, death and taxes, <laughs> but very, very practical as always. Um, wow, we've, we've certainly covered a lot of ground today. Uh, and of course, every estate is different and there are many variations to this process. There's variations to the timelines, to what's involved, in, you know, in the actual administration of an estate. Um, now, I just want to note that th- there's also a somewhat different process where there is no valid will, um, but we'll cover that in a future episode as well. So so today I was really focused on the estate administration where there is a will, it's valid, and, and we're following the course of that. Um, now, Sarah, thank you for working through the estate administration process with me today. I'm sure our listeners found that really informative and insightful. Oh, we've certainly covered a lot today. Thanks so much, Stefan. Thanks for your time, Sarah. Thanks to our listeners for joining us again on the Where There's a Will, There's a Way podcast with Coulter Legal. We'll catch you on the next episode.